You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Simon. And I'm JR. Go on, guys, whenever you're ready. <laughs> I've already reviewed this episode. This episode's on. I've already reviewed this episode of Doctor Who. This episode of the podcast is on you guys now. <clears throat> well, we should talk about the Christmas episode. We haven't had a chance to talk about we it. We haven't talked about that yet. I haven't even listened. Have you reviewed it already then? Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard that podcast yet. We're now in the middle of blooming January. Of course I've reviewed it. I wasn't going to wait for you to turn up. Where, where are you at with your opinion of it, Lee? Because usually you have one opinion and then it completely changes. Yes, I've only seen it once. I okay. saw it while I, I had jet lag because I'd come back from Australia. So I was in a bit of a haze when I watched it. In a dream state, you might say. In fact, I loved it. I thought it was great fun. The fact is, the whole thing is a dream, right? Pretty much from start to finish, the whole thing's a dream. So within it, he could do anything he wanted. So there were so many people having a little whine about it afterwards, going, oh, Father Christmas, and la la la. And every, every time they mentioned something that was wrong with it, I said, it was a dream. It was a dream. It was a dream. <laughs> do you know one you thing can I do saw? anything you want. Who cares? It was really good fun. After, after we did the review last week, I just looked at a few things online. And there were people saying, why did he have to spoil it by bringing Danny Pink back from the dead? <laughs> <laughs> what? I know, I know, I know. I mean, we're we're guffawing and laughing, and but I, I don't know. Maybe some people can't do the kind of. It wasn't even timey wimey. It was dreamy weemy. But you know, why can't people? Yeah, it's not bad. Get around the idea of these these things. Inception, you know, that's quite easy to understand as well, and all these other things. I don't understand why they're difficult. I thought Stephen Moffat made it even more easy to understand than he usually does. Yeah. Out of deference to the fact that he was doing something quite complicated in a Christmas special, he had the Doctor spelling it out just about every step of the way, mm. just to make sure that people could keep up. And in fact, that was pr- last week when I reviewed it. That was just about my only criticism, apart from the. Uh, Reindeer special effects. Oh, yeah, well, you know. Yeah. They yeah. weren't that great, but never mind. Well, come on then, Simon. What did you think? Because you've just asked Lee, but you've not said yourself. I... Oh, God, it's so boring, but I loved it. I loved it. And wow. I just... From a viewpoint, that it, what what's the brief? Doctor Who does Doctor Who does Christmas. I've said this before, previous years. But it was spot on. It was mm. absolutely everything it should have been. And it was so Christmassy. And and the whole thing of Santa, do you believe in him? The essence of, of the Santa Claus mythos mm. was there in as much as it was how he is represented in people's minds, which is what it's all about. So when I read that Stephen Moffat has said that he's left Santa Claus well alone, he's not. it doesn't change from the end of the episode. It doesn't stipulate that the, the Santa Claus is this or that, mm. and it doesn't say, oh, he's real or he's not real. 
he's absolutely everything that he would be. So any child watching it is still so left in the There are only a few zone. ways you could have Father Christmas in Doctor Who. In Doctor Who's universe, we know it's not real, it's fiction, we watch it on telly, but it has its own logic, um, internal logic, so you kind of think, well, Father Christmas could turn up, but you know, then we're getting into the kill the moon, then we're getting into all these other well, slightly you know, daft kind of ideas that people are getting upset about, that in our world, this is how it is, and in Doctor Who's world, it should reflect that a bit. But just you know, just change it a little bit. But you don't really want to tread on the toes of real science and real this. And you know, Father Christmas is Father Christmas. Yes, he could turn up. In fact, I think Matt Smith flashes a photo of him with um, Frank Sinatra and himself at a, a hunting lodge. Oh, in a Christmas Carol. Yeah. So yeah. whether that's fake or not, psychic paper <laughs> possibly. But there it is. There's a picture of him and Father Christmas. Yeah. yeah. But is it? You know. But, this but is the before best you go way, on, just way to interject. Yeah. Yeah. We'll come to the best way in a second. But just to interject, in the Robin Hood episodes, mm. he meets a person he assumes is a mythological character mm. and d- discovers that that person, that mythological character, is based on a real person. Now, the thing about it is, in Last Christmas, they even have him in the credits as Santa Claus rather than Father Christmas. Well, Santa Claus, as we all know, is... It's not Latin. What language is it? Finnish? I don't know. Whatever language it is. For St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas. Isn't it Netherlands? Uh, could be. Something yeah. like that. It's one of the low countries or one of the Scandinavian countries. Mm. Anyway, there it is. It's Dutch or whatever for St. Nicholas. And of course, St. Nicholas was a real person. Mm. So, uh, the myth that's based on a real person, something that's Doctor Who's done before anyway... That would have been a potential way of doing it. It would have if been. If you didn't want to. But, go on, Lee. You were saying about how this was the best version. How and why? How and why? It was the best version because you can, like Simon said, you can wrap it all up in a little Christmas sock and, you know, no, that's not right, Sam. You can... <laughs> how? How? Do how about your private habits? Because yeah. it's all a dream, you don't need Santa to be distinguished as either real or not. No, and no. that's why Nick Frost gets away with with doing a very odd version of Father Christmas. Uh, you know, he... Uh, oh, I don't no, know. Was well, he odd? Was he odd? Well, you know you get this Father Blooming Christmas, Raymond Briggs, right? Yeah. That was like a was bit a... of a, hang on a minute, what's he doing with Father Christmas? But it kind of worked. You, you kind of believe this this character's working. Nick Frost is was probably a bit too Nick Frost for me. I think it's just because I know him really well. It'd be interesting to know what people who never seen his work before make of him as being this kind of... Really you can't employ Christmas. an actor and then expect him to be someone completely No, different. no, that's the point. No, They've employed him to do that. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I think he was very uh, measured. Yeah. He, he could have he could have gone completely... Um, but he was almost evil in some... He wasn't evil, but do you know what I mean? It, it was, was a bit I think it was, play, it was played so you weren't quite sure. Because, you know, when the Doctor comes out at the beginning and he says, you know, and he has this little tete-a-tete with him and then gets back in and says something about tangerines, this little slight... And the elves are going, ooh. And you think, well, hang on a minute, That's is that Father Christmas? You know, is the Doctor really going to have a go at Father Christmas? Is he? So is Father Christmas a bit evil, a Should bit twisted? Should I tell you? Well, I think it's Father Christmas played as the kind of guy who's on the dole for 364 days of the year <laughs> yeah. and then gets to do an entire year's work in one day and <laughs> probably isn't that best pleased about it. Yeah, so it's a bit like a Raymond Briggs-ish kind of character with a bit of he's going to have an element of the rock star about him as well a little bit of rock star mm. arrogance 
One of the funniest lines. I'm Father Christmas. Yeah, exactly. one of the funniest lines was, how do you think your presents got there? By magic. <laughs> that just had me. Brilliant. Do you know, this was the one thing I forgot to mention last week. Me and Chris, we talked for almost two hours about it, and we didn't once mention the elves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all that interplay between the three of them, the two elves and Santa. Mm. And, well, Dan Starkey and, oh my God, the good name of the other guy's gone out of my head. But the two of them, they were just spectacular. They mm. were fantastic. Mm. Mm. It was There was this kind of strange fear when I was watching the first part, thinking, Is this, has he really done it this time? Because I, I didn't read anything about Stephen Moffat saying, I'm not going to touch Father Christmas. Yeah. So I just assumed he had Father Christmas there in front of me. So for a few moments I was thinking, hang on, and there were elves here, proper elves looking a bit kind of like from the film Elf. What's this all about? <laughs> and Clara's standing on the roof talking to him, and he's saying, "Yeah, it is me." I'm thinking, <laughs> so Stephen Moffat had me, you know, right at the beginning. I didn't know what was going on. And, and as that, soon as we that saw the old dream, it? It, yeah. it was, uh, it was that was a, a fantastic moment. The dance past the dream crabs. Oh what yeah. What the hell is that? You know, when when you first watch it, I can remember my feeling thinking, "This is the weirdest thing I've possibly watched on telly this year." What the hell's going on? She's dancing to Slade. Oh, I just adored that. I just thought it was TV, <laughs> TV gold. It's just like one of those moments that I'll always remember. It was, it was lovely. Really when nice. she, she played it perfectly. When she, I can't remember exactly how it went, but she, it's like she said, I'm about to dance then. Or she just about starting to dance. And in that instant between you becoming aware of the fact that she's about to dance and her actually dancing, you're thinking, oh no. This is going to be dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, it was sublime. It was. It was. And <laughs> it didn't work with the music, but it did. No, it didn't. Yeah. That's what I, I loved about it. That was the weird thing, because they were obviously playing that song in so that she could dance along to it. Yeah. Because in so many of these things where somebody's dancing, they're either slightly out of sync with the beat, or else they're slightly out of tempo with the beat, which is even worse. Or they're just not dancing to the record. They're mm. just dancing to the right time signature. Mm. But she was moving on the guitar breaks yes, and yes. singing along <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, it was like contemporary interpretive. Yeah. With, with a hint there, of street dance. But there's an absolute... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so an, I saw somebody dance like that once. Anyway, don't make me laugh. But uh, I think that the, the reason behind it was so brilliant. We've seen this before where... The doctor's saying, you know, think about something else, you know, add up. He always does this, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. 48 takeaways. And a nice reference back to that when he does it with Clara. Exactly, yeah. So you you get that. But this was a really nice twist on the same theme of of trying to not think about something that's going to invade your brain if you think about them. Loved it. I thought it was a really good scene. Um, And even better because we learn by the end of it that she's nothing to do with a scientific team. Yeah, yeah. She's just a human at home who's broken up with her boyfriend. Mm. Forget Dave, or whatever it is at the bottom. Forgive Dave. Forget. Oh, is it? Oh, of course, yeah, it's forget. It's Christmas dear. Day. Time for forgiveness. That, uh, that brings me. That was the only. Uh, I, I read obviously a few of the opinions on the internet, and a lot, as, as you've already said, that a lot of the things that were said were, like, were, were completely. Sense, yeah, yeah, were completely explained. The only thing that did, I read from someone, which is still irritating me now, but I can accept it, is the fact that the. Dream crabs, if they were, uh, you know, people are saying, oh, it's a rip-off of Alien. And you think, well, yeah, but they even quote that. They even quote that she's 
she was she had a list in front of her, didn't she? Where yeah. she was buying it's the DVD of Alien. The fact, the fact, that yeah, they, it's a bit deeper they, than that. I went into this in depth last week, but uh, I'll do it again now for the benefit of you two, if you like. But, but there carry was, on. There was kind of the explanation that they looked like facehuggers because she was interpreting like that. She was influencing the dream like that. Uh-huh. So when she woke up, why did they still look like facehuggers? Why was the one that was still on Clara still look <clears> like <throat> a facehugger? Because go on, explain. Because in the script. They need to be attached to your head in order to be able to access your brain. Okay. Right? Yeah. And in the story, the four people who are in the infirmary need to have their faces hidden so the four people in the uh, control room don't recognise that they're looking at themselves. So it needs to be attached to your head and covering your face. Once you've made a decision to do a story where an alien is attached to your head and covering your face, you can either embrace the fact that you're doing the same thing as the face hugger. Or you can try and pretend you're okay, not. Okay, so you're sta- you're taking a sidestep out of the <coughs> writing process. So yeah, <coughs> I, I understand that from a story yeah. point of view. I can appreciate. And people... in the fiction, yeah, she's intending to watch Alien that day. Something happens in her dream that resembles Alien a little bit in that they're attached to people's <coughs> heads. What you don't see in the reality after they wake up mm. is them coming down from the ceiling okay. and having the tendrils and stuff. Yeah. The stuff where they come down from the ceiling and they've got tendrils and all that kind of stuff, mm. that might be what she brings in the dream. Mm-hmm. What I did really like, I liked the opening up <coughs> as they got closer. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Because it was getting close to the reveal of the face, that they would suddenly, mm. the moment they realised it was themselves, that's almost like them accept, accepting the attack. Because I heard um, somebody else talking about that. They said, I didn't, un- I didn't understand why they did that opening the face thing. Why did they do that? And I tell you that, what, made, that made psychological sense to me. Was... That would have been ultra freaky if you'd have been in a room with four aliens attached to four strangers' heads or whatever. Not four strangers, four other people's heads. Mm. And then it opened and you found yourself looking at yourself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But isn't that... Kind of body snatchers I, moment, I took that... Maybe I've probably got it wrong. I only saw it once. But I took that as being the... You know, if it had opened fully, mm. that's when you're lost. Yes, because yeah. Oh, absolutely. yeah, yeah, okay. Because she's walking through it for a reason. She's got to walk past them. They don't really explain why she has to walk past them. Well, that's the so point. She... It's a dream. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, the reason is is that it's an instinct. It's an instinct. 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 <laughs> an instinctive <laughs> thing. Instinctive, not instinctual. <laughs> oh, the other thing I wanted to say was people dog. saying it's an alien ripper, blah blah blah, it inception is. and all so that what? sort of thing. Where's... Oh yeah, yeah, but. No one's meant. I've not heard anyone mention the Suicide Squid and Red Dwarf. Red Dwarf. I was just about to say. I think it's so close to that. <laughs> it is. I'm oh. amazed no one said that oh, was a rip off Red Dwarf. Yeah. Probably because Alien came before Red Dwarf, and Red Dwarf was homage in Alien, maybe. Uh, in his, no, I don't no, know if you've seen the Suicide Squid. It's essentially this creature that puts people into a dream state where they start having a collective. Oh, oh I see what you mean. Is that like? Yeah. The trap the, is the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so they the other side believe like their, their particular characters. Is probably quite. one of my favourite Red Dwarf episodes. Is it called Back to Reality? Back to Reality. It's quite an old thing that's been done in science oh. fiction before, mm. though. So. Mm. I mean, none of these ideas are truly original. The, the best thing about this is that he's done it in Doctor Who because yeah. Doctor Who's never done anything like this before. And in fact, last week, Chris and I said Doctor Who's never done a dream story before, but we've got Amy's Choice, which kind of yes. is yeah. essentially a similar thing. That's so I should apologise to the listeners for not mentioning Amy's Choice last week. Yeah. Well, I've not got a problem with the alien thing because 
You know, you look at the 70... I think somebody, again, it's great going back to Facebook, isn't it? Because you can kind of have a go at people and they can't have a go at you back. Well, but, they can. Uh, I've got some emails here. Oh, it's a podcast, <laughs> isn't it? I keep forgetting what it's been listened to. No, but uh, somebody was saying, oh, you know, oh, hasn't Moffat got any more original ideas? He's ripping off this, this and this. And I was thinking, well, hang on a minute. You know, go back to the golden age of Doctor Who, which is what it's cited as, and it's all just ripping off old Universal films and yeah, everything else. Films and Hammer that, films yeah. and Forbidden Planet and, you know, that's and that was the best period because it just stole very well. Doctor oh, Who... I don't care. I don't care. It's still. So, <laughs> I'm saying nothing's original. Doctor Who goes through phases and and actually, if you look at it uh, sort of from the perspective of history, you can see the changes happening and they alternate. Mm. It, it goes through phases of being a programme that's about something to being a programme that just entertains. The Hartnell years are quite educational. It's kind of a children's programme, meant to be teaching them stuff. And so there's historical stories balanced with stories that include moral dilemmas and that kind of stuff. And it's teaching children about history and about ethics. Mm. Then you go into the Troughton years and it's all just, you know, installations being invaded by aliens. Mm. Mm. Then you go into the Pertwee years and Barry Letts and Terence Dix are quite fond of telling stories that are analogies for the state of the planet in the 1970s. So you've got stuff about the miners' strikes, you've got stuff about the end of empire, um, pollution, all this kind of stuff. Lots of stories during that period that are about something. Then you get into Hinchcliffe and Holmes, and to a certain extent, Graham Williams, Hinchcliffe and Holmes do lots of <coughs> rip-offs of movies. Yeah, and the then theatrical. Yeah, and then Graham Williams does another three years, which is ostensibly similar, but is more literary than pulp film. Then you get into Christopher Bidmead, and again, he tries to make the series about something. And then Eric Saywood kind of goes back in the other direction and just makes it into sort of a... Well, he tries to make it into sort of a hard-bitten sort of crime thing with aliens. And then you get into Andrew Cartmel, and... Although it's more in gra the terms of graphic novels, again, there's lots of allusions to other stuff as well. Mm. And Russell T. Davis is a bit more like Barry Letts and Terence Dix. There are lots of stories in the Russell T. Davis that are about the world that we live in. And Stephen Moffat seems to be doing Doctor Who just for fun again at the moment. Mm. And people seem to forget, you know, when they're dissing Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who because it's not about anything, <laughs> that their favourite Doctors of the past are Tom Baker and Patrick Trowan when it wasn't about anything. No, no. no. He's, he's like in a big toy box, really. But he's also offered almost three different series in his tenure, isn't he? I mean, you, you, you get different flavours, different tones. I mean, Series 5, Series 6, a, 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 a bit different to each other. You know, the Series 5's got a bit of a Russell T. Davis hangover. Uh, there's there's some things going on, feeling its way, and then you get the six, which is its own beast. It's like a sound, it yeah. And you get the filmic season seven A B, and then you get this again, completely different, slightly darker, I suppose. It is darker, but it's more of a. This is the closest Doctor Who's ever been to being a sort of social drama, but which I don't mean sink estates and all that kind of stuff. Because if you look back at Russell T Davis's first series, which has got all those episodes set on the estate. And it's not about what's happening on the estate. The estate is just an anchor for the stories to take flight from. But series eight, where you're telling the story of Clara and Danny, you have 
two entirely separate stories, but both of which inform the other taking place. One of which takes place on Earth and is about a relationship between a man and a woman who both have reasons why they're going to struggle with that relationship. Can they make it work? And that informs the story of Clara and the Doctor, her being the first companion who's never been a full-time companion aboard the TARDIS. And can you make it work going on adventures with the Doctor and then coming home and having your beans on toast? I absolutely loved that angle. I mean, obviously you can't play it forever, but that the whole point of this was seeing whether it would work. And it was something different. And we hadn't really seen it before. I mean, with, with Rose, like you say, she went with him. She wasn't coming back and forth. She wasn't no. at home. And he, no. So this was a really interesting moment where she falls in love. She's had somebody, but the Doctor still can't let it go. He's got, he's keep keeps coming back and taken away. And I, I, I really enjoyed that. Whereas that seemed to be grating on a lot of people. Oh, can't she just get on the TARDIS? Well, no, because the whole series <laughs> isn't about that. The whole series is about her relationship with Danny and then her relationship with the Doctor and the, the adventures happen in between. Caretaker's great. I love that one because you get all three of them acting brilliantly together. Um, and also, just one more thing about the Clara and, and Danny relationship that people seem to, again, be kind of moaning quite a lot about. I think the fact that he's always on, sitting on the settee you know, just looking at the telly. I mean, we moaned about it, Simon Forbid, didn't we? It's like, oh, yeah. Why would she go, be going out with him? He's such a misery, you know, just sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> and she's quite kind of like, completely different. I thought about it. I knew two people just like that. And they worked really, really well. Yeah. Actually. You know, she was a complete opposite to him. He was all that lazy old swine. But let's not forget he's a character looking for some normality. Well, yeah. actually, yeah, he wasn't a lazy swine. He, he, he had a nasty... Bit of you know, he had something history. bad in his past, and he's just, you and know, now he's getting over it. Yeah, yeah. It's like a man taking yoga in his life. It, because Doctor Who is like this fantasy adventure series, right? <clears throat> the stuff with Danny Pink, you can only see little bits of it. Yeah. So you only get to see the conversation that takes place while they're on the sofa, for example. Yeah. But we know from the other bits of it that we've seen, for instance, when he's in the school playground training the kids. Doing the, um, mm. uh, what's it called that the kids do at school? The uh, army thing. What, the drill? Yeah, no, what's the cadets? Oh, He's yeah. doing the cadets, right? So we know that he gets out and he does stuff. And we know that he's got a full-time job. Mm. So when we see him relaxing at home on the sofa, that's not the defining thing of his character. It's just that there happens to be a couple of episodes. And there happens to be a couple of episodes where we see that aspect to their relationship which is probably quite deliberate because Last Christmas is episode 13 of series 8. You know, it is the continuation of the story because this is the bit where the story... This is the last chapter in the book where the characters realise things are going to be okay after all, which sets up the possibility of another book, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and because Stephen Moffat knew he was going to do this dream sequence in the Christmas special and because he knew that he would have to have Danny and Clara... Christmas morning, on the sofa, all that kind of stuff. He deliberately puts a couple of bits of them on the sofa in Series 8 so that when you get to the Christmas special, it's not like, oh, but this isn't what Clara and Danny have been up to. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Say more. Because um, I've already reviewed we, this. I, I mean, obviously we're talking about Father Christmas quite a lot, but we're forgetting, I, I we're forgetting the main kind of point of the um of the actual episode, which is the kind of reconciliation of her and the doctor. Yeah. And how brilliantly that worked in dream state alone. 
you know, it all happened within a dream state, and then you come back to each, uh, to each Stop other. Stop slapping your bollocks. I... This is coming out on the microphone. <laughs> is it a big heavy thud? Yeah, every time. It's more like an executive toy. It's Oi. like, it's like <laughs> I enjoyed Doctor Who. Slap. Oops, there's my bollocks. <laughs> I enjoyed a... Clara and Danny. Whoops, there's my bollocks. Save that for your Game of Thrones podcast, Lee. It's a full so... stop. What can I say? Game of Thrones. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> 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 but anyway, that's yeah, exactly. So oh, I, I love and the... I love the fact that they went off and they were laughing. He was laughing. The doctor was laughing. She was like, "Okay, you know, I've got to get over myself. I've got to get over this this bad period. Mm. Let's just go and have fun. Sod it." Game playing, Thrones testicles, <laughs> Game of Thrones. I can't believe you were thinking about, about that while yeah. I was giving you my... I wasn't. I thought of it before. I just waited for you to pause. <laughs> I mean, another thing people have said about it is the fact that, um, oh, no, I didn't like the way it was left at the end of the last season. I would have been happy if Clara, if uh, Jenna... Well, when that episode yes. went out, we thought it was the end, didn't we? Yeah, and I thought it was a beautiful ending. No it different was a deception, to... wasn't it? It was a deception, which I'm slightly disappointed at because I like that. There was I, a... I, I, I thought it was... Tragic but beautiful yeah, that, that they well. each played this little lying yeah. game on each other. Yeah, and I think in order to grumble, protect the other one's the feelings. Grumble, one of the grumbles, I've got a couple, but there's one of the grumbles about the Christmas episode yeah. is the way that they one-linered it back. It was like, oh well, I lied. Yeah, well, so did I. Oh, that was it. I know <laughs> that's, all, that's all you that. could really do. Yeah, in order to make it move forward. It but felt thought, like that should have been something the episode built up to. Yes, exactly. A little bit more important. Really. Whereas. They get over that fairly early on. Yeah, so I was a bit disappointed in that. But but um, as Chris pointed out last week, it's kind of more realistic and it allows you to get on with the story. And it's also dream state, therefore these things will just come out, won't they? Oh, we can say anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's also because it's a dream state, mm. you get to the end of the episode and the, the tension there is, were they actually telling the truth when she said... Danny's actually dead, alive, mm. and he said Gallifrey's not actually there, I lied. When you get to the end of the tr- dream, were they lying to each other still? They d- not uh, f- from our perspective, the viewers, we know, mm. but from their perspective of, as characters, mm. which makes that very final scene where he says to her, come on then, all of time and space, and she says, damn right, and they run off to the TARDIS together, grinning like children, that's a bit of tension because it might still not have ended like that. Yeah, maybe. I love that bit in as much as that felt like a new beginning. Yeah. Mm. It really did feel like the resolution of grief. <clears throat> well, yeah. And yeah, definitely. And that's where it was very, very clever writing. But also, I will not hear it any more about the fact. Oh, this man can't write. Are you do you seriously mean that? Do you seriously mean that? And also, I also want to pick up on the point. Oh, before uh, you go on, go on. Hold that point in mind. I will. But you, but <laughs> the, also, you said it's a new beginning, but also the scene where the Doctor realises who he is at the end of Death in Heaven, where he says, I'm a... and then pauses, because he has to think about it. Mm. And, you know, I suppose some people read that scene as him doing a big speechifying bit like Matt Smith might have done. It wasn't. It was the opposite of that, insofar as I'm concerned. It was him realising something, and it's spilling out of him. It wasn't a speech so much as just random thoughts spewing out as he realised who he is. And that's the point. 
at which, and people have complained that Series 8 was too much about Clara and not about the Doctor, and I will contend <laughs> that Series 8 was all about the Doctor, about and Clara <clears throat> was the facility that allowed it to be. Mm -hmm. And that speech at the end where he says, I'm a, an idiot with a box. You can go on and have an adventure. Mm, mm. He's, he's realising what he is. Mm. And that's what Series 8 has been about. It is started with the Doctor, who is really unsure of himself. And it's ended with that guy mm. realising who he is and making a resolution to go off and be that person. And Last Christmas is like... It's like the end of a chapter in a book, the penultimate chapter, where you've had two characters throughout the entire book who are at odds with each other when they shouldn't be. And at the end of the penultimate chapter, one of the characters realises, oh, that's how things should be. And then the very final chapter is where he persuades her that that's how things should be. And last Christmas was that chapter in the book where the character who's made the realisation comes out of his shell it's like in a, in order to make an analogy, it's like a romantic comedy. You've got 90 minutes of two characters dancing around each other who don't realise they're supposed to be together, right? Yeah, it's irritating, isn't it? And that speech... <laughs> what, Mance in the Stone? But that speech at the end of, that speech at the end of Death in Heaven is Billy Crystal running across New York to be with Meg Ryan. And Last Christmas is the scene set in the New Year's party where Meg Ryan says, yes, of course, you're right. Oh, she was gorgeous, wasn't she, Meg Ryan? Was. What? Yeah. I don't, I don't know why I said that like no, that. Well, no, and I don't know why I kind of agreed with you, but anyway. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I want to make the point, my my possibly my favourite bit of the whole thing, apart from the dance, was <laughs> when the Doctor helped Clara to pull a cracker. Oh, yeah. I went... My lip went with that yeah, one. And I, I thought, that. when she's old at the end, <gasps> and he comes in... And oh it's one of those God. bits that you kind of have to suspend your disbelief for a bit because if he's still in a dream, you should know he's still in a dream, right? Because he's still got the ice cream pain, but he doesn't seem to know he's still in a dream. So you have to forgive it that. But she's old. And he's doing just it for her as, sake, though. But she helped that Smith's doctor pull a cracker oh. in the time of the doctor. Yes, like oh, he I was old. That. Oh, I'm such an idiot, but I loved it anyway. Yeah. Oh, no, that's the point. It's like... Oh, I just thought it was a moment of tenderness, and I just thought this guy... Oh, it I... is a moment of tenderness, yeah. referring back to another moment of tenderness between the same two characters How when the situation was reversed. That was so brilliantly acted by Jenna Louise Coleman. So Because it's very hard to do old person acting when you're young, to be to do it convincingly. Also, makeup never looks very good. And I thought her makeup was really good in this. It was quite yeah, subtle. Yes, so I thought, I thought and makeup also, was good. The only thing they'd missed out on doing was the eyes... Yeah, which is, true, yeah. but yeah, but what she really does really well there is not being the old person, She's herself, but in but... having the regrets that an old person would have. Yeah, mm -hmm. she really sells that aspect. I thought it was it. great, and I thought it was beautiful, and I, I had to do that kind of little gulp there, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to end. Uh, is it going to end here? This would be amazing. If it ends there are a few here. people. <laughs> oh, did you think? Yeah, some other people thought but it, it would have been like... brilliant if it ended like that. Because yeah, it would have. I, I just thought I wouldn't want it to end like that. But part of me was like, well, if it does, they'll be happy with it. That would be amazing. I'd have rather it would ended at the end of the series. Yeah, in that way, rather than her being old. found old, because it's yeah. it's kind of the same. That would have been telling a tragedy. If it had ended where it ended at the end yeah. of last series, that would have been a tragedy. Yeah. This, if it, if if they'd have got back together. 
and then realised that they hadn't, that would have compounded the tragedy, mm, would have taken it yeah. to another level. But what it did, it did the thing that I mentioned earlier, it made the reconciliation between them both so much better, because mm. you had this doctor looking at an old flower, oh, I've missed all these years, or, you know, whatever. And, and that made him feel something, it made him go... But they're oh, still but that, close and they're still close. That's the Christmas yeah. Carol effect. Yeah, it's it's it the second chance yes, thing. Is, yeah, it's yeah. a sudden, you know... Yeah, it is. What, what, what's the day-to-day little boy, you know? Yeah. And it's like... Still Christmas yeah. Day. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. But of course... And then he asked him for a turkey. But yeah. of course Last Christmas <laughs> was a story about them getting back together. Yes. Mm. So that, if that had been the ending, to me it would have felt like a false ending. Yeah, yeah. same here. It wouldn't have felt Snap. appropriate. Snap. And also it, it kind of relates to the Amy and Rory thing as well where oh, yeah. he has to realise that they've had a full life and he can't interfere in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. So it's been done before. But actually, it's... yeah, in um, the girl who waited, uh, Amy gets old. Mm. There, I, again, her makeup did wasn't quite as convincing, but I thought her acting was pretty good in that as well. Oh yeah, yeah. But I think Clara just topped it. So we have quite a lot of old person acting in Doctor Who at the moment. You know, like an old Matt Smith, an old David David Tennant. These... Well, it's because Stephen Moffat's made it a series about time. Yeah. Which is something that it never was before. But, you know, you remember when we had the guy in bed uh, in, in um, Blink? Yeah. Um, you know, that was just an unbelievable, beautiful and brilliant moment, which I think... Of course, that was a different actor powerful. in that case. <laughs> was it? <laughs> but it's the, it's the amazing moment of, oh, yes, I'm in the 1960s here, or he's been sent back in time, and now he's old, and so quick. You know, in storytelling terms, it's so quick, but... To him, it's a lifetime and the regrets, was... and it's like, whoa, this is so. You know, the Clara uh, being old, that was a very similar and powerful effect, which Stephen Moffat's used a few times. But I, I just thought it was great. He uses the same tricks, yeah. But yeah. then so I'm many say tropes. Come on, fed up with that word. <laughs> it's just a word. <laughs> it's all I've heard this year. I got to say, I don't get fed up with words. It's just a word. It means what it means, <laughs> and it's useful. <laughs> But he Does did. that phrase give him enough trope? You can use that in one of your articles. I don't think I will. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> but the point is, Stephen Moffat does use a lot of the same tricks, but then all authors do. Yeah, they do. So if you go back through Russell T. Davis, you see the same things over and over again there. But because the... I keep saying this. It's because the things that Stephen Moffat do are so distinctive that they stand out more when he repeats them. And oftentimes, he doesn't simply repeat a trick. What he'll do with the trick is either modify or enhance or emphasise it in some way so that he does something else with it. So he doesn't... He might use a similar trick twice, but the second time he uses it, he will use it to achieve something different from what he achieved the first time. Mm -hmm. So these are the things that are in his storytelling armoury <clears throat> and if he just told the same story over and over again, then fair enough. But what he's doing is, in each of his four series that he's done, and let's count Day of the Doctor as a fifth instance, even though it's just one episode. In each of those five instances, he has told a different story using the same tricks that he usually uses. But the end that he's achieving, in each of those occasions... Is something different. Series 5 is about... Series 5 is about the reconciliation of Amy Pond. She starts that series as a broken character. She ends that series as a fixed character. Mm -hmm. The Doctor turns up... Stephen Moffat does something amazing 
in the 11th hour, he has the doctor turn <coughs> up in the companion's life when she's seven years old. Mm. And then coming back 12 years later when she's 19, or whatever it is, I can't remember, I think that's yeah. right. Which isn't creepy. By the way. <laughs> but, yeah, but this is something that's never happened in Doctor Who before. Mm. And Stephen Moffat makes something wonderful of it. But, and I don't think anybody gives Stephen Moffat credit for this, he he's a writer who understands that when you do things like this, they must have consequences. So when the Doctor comes back and Amy Pond's 19, and then again when she's 21 or whatever it is, she's a broken character. And Series 5 is the story of how a broken character who has this kind of obsession with the Doctor, which you would have if this imaginary person turned up when you were 7, except they weren't imaginary, but you're the only person who knows that, and everybody else in your life is telling you that they were, comes back 12 years later, and it's still the same day for him. Of course she's broken. And at the end of Series 5, she's gone from being somebody who's obsessed with this imaginary person to somebody who is now at a place in their life where this imaginary person can just be a friend in order to allow her to have the relationship with her husband mm. that she was never going to have when she originally agreed to marry him because she was still broken. Now she's fixed. Now she and Rory can have a fulfilling life together. Mm. That's the story of Series 5. Series 6 is the story of the tragedy of River Song, the character who has been stolen from her parents in infancy and has spent the entire time between then and becoming an adult being programmed to be an assassin, a killer, and falling in love with the one person that she's been programmed to kill, who can never love her back. And so series six is the tragedy of River Song. Series five, the the mending of Amy Pond. Series six, the tragedy of River Song. And of course, series seven is the sci-fi series, where it's, you know, about the Amy Pond, the Clara Oswald lost through time. Then you've got the Day of the Doctor, which is the story of the fixing of Gallifrey. And in a way, that's the fixing of the Doctor, mm. because the Doctor has been a broken character ever since Russell T. Davis brought him back to television. And this is the way he fixes himself, by fixing Gallifrey. And then in Series 8, you've got a Doctor who's at the start of a regeneration cycle that he was never supposed to have and is filled with self-doubt because... Yeah. When something like that, it's like if you went to the doctor and said, I've got a cold, and the doctor says, actually, you have got a disease that is so bad, you've got three months to live. And you reconcile yourself to the fact that you've got three months to live. And then three months later, you go back to the doctors and say, right, it's time. And he says, oh, hang on, and pulls a syringe down off the shelf and gives you the cure. Mm. You are going to spend the next day after you come out of the doctors there expecting to be a dead person. You're going to question yourself. Mm. You're going to think, yeah. I've survived. What is the thing that has caused me to survive? Have mm. I deserved it? You will question all sorts of things about God and stuff. Yeah. Whether you're a believer or not. If you're a believer, you'll question whether what God's done to you by making you think you were going to be dead for three months is... A very nice thing to do and if you're not a believer you're going to question whether this miracle cure that turns up 
is an example of the fact that God actually exists. Mm. The doctor that's at the start of series eight is in that place in his life. And at the end of series eight, he's fixed. So Stephen Moffat has done all these stories throughout mm. the series, mm. but he's used these tricks to tell these stories. Mm. And I promised that I would let you two guys talk tonight. And but, <laughs> no, I was going to say, it's almost like um, a hollow victory as far as getting yes. that. Yeah. In as much as he still hasn't saved Gallifrey, Gallifrey is still lost in his head. Yeah. But and it's not destroyed. It's not destroyed, it's not. no. But, I mean, without getting into any personal details about my situation, we've been in the situation with my family where we've had a we've lost a couple of family members and we've um, obviously benefited from that. And it's kind of changed how our lives are. But at no point can we celebrate, celebrate that. that. Yeah. No, that's what I was going to say. What Jared said was correct, but you need that that full. You know, any, anyone who's lost somebody in their family and they've got some. Yeah, it's a fuller impact. There's a guilt thing going on as well, obviously. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's played so well with Peter Capaldi. It's like, like you say, with the cure thing with the doctor, but just imagine that he's also got with this 17 thing as well. and 18 yeah. families behind him that, that are still stuck in that situation. You can't do anything about it, though you really, really wish you could, and maybe you can, but you're just inches away from the. And you know, you know what? So he doesn't really. Next year, he he's going to tell, well, maybe next year, maybe the year after, and maybe he won't. But, the, you know, the way Stephen Moffat has been telling stories about people getting fixed, next year, it would be perfect if he tells the story of how the Doctor and Missy, the Master, who have been arch enemies, having been great friends when they were kids, have to come back together to save Gallifrey have to mend their differences, mm. have to mend one another in certain ways, and will miss it. Because every time you regenerate, it resets your character. So although you have certain of the same things that are sort of current throughout all your regenerations, the potential for change is there. So the potential exists within Missy to become a good person. And we've already seen at the end of Death in Heaven, her plan was so insane but what she was doing, her plan was, I'm giving you a present, Doctor. And you can read that as she wants him to be as bad as her. But you can also read that as she wants to make up with him. And she's just so buggered in the head. Yeah. But this is this plan is the way she well, thinks yeah, up like to do it. It's like your dog bringing you a dead bird, isn't it? It's that. The yeah. yeah. But the master... <laughs> like the cat does, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But the master's always been twisted ever since day one. We just know this. The way he kills people shrinks them. The way he does mm. this. They're all really weird and horrible ways of killing people off. Anyway, why would you become a vicar of a church? In, a, to, you know, and pretend, in order to raise the devil. In order to raise the devil. You just go and raise the devil. You wouldn't <laughs> pretend for a while. But no, he's got a bit of a twisted theatrical side. He wants to be a vicar for a little while because it, it turns him on in that kind of weird way. So the people question is... are evil and strange and weird and missing. Are we seeing a master who's going to turn out to be a goodie? But one who's still rotten in the head. I don't think she's going to be a good thing at all. You could argue that John Sims' master was, did that at the end anyway, though, didn't he? He did that same, you know. He kind of, but mm. he won, didn't he, again? Did know? he? Yeah, he won when he got shot. He won because he didn't regenerate. He, he made the doctor... Well, no, 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 end of time. Oh, end sorry. Time, oh, yeah. Yeah. When he um, the saves the doctor and saves the earth from Gallifrey. Yeah, but at the end of he that, did, he's he? the guy who seals Gallifrey back off. Yeah. I always wondered whether there was an ulterior motive, but I don't think there was, was there? It's just like an instant. It's an instinct, going back to that word you couldn't find before. 
It's not, yes, maybe this is what the master is. The master has been broken. And maybe because the new series does things on a slightly but, more sensitive level in certain ways than the classic series would, where the, you know, the classic series would say, right, here's a villain, yeah. and you just have to take it on trust that they're a villain. Nowadays, the series tends to examine motives and tends to rehabilitate people. Yeah. I do think at the end of time, when he's pointing the gun, um, whatever way it is, that isn't at the Doctor, um, you, you, when I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, all we want is the, the Master to turn and go, Doctor, you're actually really nice, I like you, I'm going to save your life. And he does it. But then you start thinking really hard about that, and basically the Time Lords have completely effed his life up by sticking these drums in his head since he was a kid. For how many hundreds of thousands of years he's been alive? Uh, he must hate the Time Lords so even much more than he hates the Time Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's so it's a choice. It's a less of two Doctor superseded. Yeah, Doctor. No, and, and he's fearing he's fearing the Time War starting up again as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So because he, yeah, he's mm. a coward. But Missy, oh, God, I can't. Well, it'll be interesting back. to see where uh, so Stephen Moffat takes that. And she yeah. said, and he said that she's. Almost certainly going to come back. I don't think anybody's absolutely confirmed it, but but I would just be surprised if when she comes back, they don't go back to the Master's very first story, where the Master and the Doctor join forces at the end to get rid of the Nestines mm. in Terror of the Autons. Mm. I would just, and that happens in Legopolis as well, of course. Yeah, yeah. I would just be surprised if in some way, either next year or possibly the year after, Doctor and the Master don't spend an episode Join, you know, forces joined. Hmm. No, I, yeah, I thought it was going to happen in this one, Death in Heaven, actually. Well, in a way, it kind of did. Everything that she did, she did for him. I know, that's so weird, isn't it? It's a messed up plan, but, you know... <laughs> what a girlfriend. She didn't figure in the series long enough, though, to, for that to happen. There was too much else going on. There was too much else going on. Yeah, she needs to come back for, like, a... Well, this was two episodes, but it was a single story. Mm. She needs to come back for three episodes that are two stories or possibly even three yeah. stories so that you can actually tell a story with her as opposed and to... And I think it shouldn't have to be that complex. Um, I know Death in Heaven can be like you say, everything's there so you can understand it. But I think actually she's got the capability to just walk into a story, pull the story along with her, with the Doctor and make it quite a linear, good, fun romp. And it can still be deadly and strange and a bit odd. We don't <clears> have to have amazingly complex timey-wimey. Stephen Moffat's not very good at writing linear stuff. No, he's not. No, you're right. But and if you go fun. back <laughs> over everything else he's done, Jekyll and Sherlock, oh, and yeah. joking apart and coupling, especially coupling, he doesn't like to do straightforward linear stuff. No. And... People moan about that, but when you've got a writer of the calibre of Stephen Moffat, why would you want to put that square peg into a round hole? If he's not so good at the linear stuff, then let him do the non-linear stuff, so, yeah. because it's still amazing. Why would you want to get Nick Frost in as Santa Claus if he's not going to be Nick Frost? It's... <laughs> it's... That's true. I do rewatch that. I do. I love Nick Frost. Now, do you know what? I think out of all the comedians that have been in Doctor Who, he's probably served it the best. Mm. He's done the best job. Speaking of which, have we seen today's news, which will be old news by the time this podcast goes out? Paul Kay. Oh, yeah. Do you know who Paul Kay is? Yeah, comedian. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's... Yeah, I think he's great. Well, I think he started 
shooting yesterday. We're recording this on the 6th of January. Series started up again yesterday. Um, pretty sure they're recording episode one first. And Paul Kay's in it. Oh, I hope he's got a good part. He was a good actor. Well, maybe he's the magician who has an apprentice. Oh. What magician? Oh. <laughs> the, the name of the episode at the end of the Christmas special. I didn't see it. What? I closed my eyes. Oh. I never Drew back the curtain. Again. Oh, Imagination never lets me take the blame. Who sang that? Go West. Oh. Bet you liked that, didn't you? Um. It was the 80s. <laughs> it was white soul boys, wasn't it? It was. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, but they I loved the, the Blow Monkeys. I know you did. But, yeah, but their first album was jazz. And it is very different from the rest of the stuff they do. Mm. Can and you say that word again? Jazz. 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 <laughs> but if you get past the Blow Monkey singles, because obviously they put the... <clears throat> most straightforward stuff out of singles. If you get to their albums, there's actually some really interesting stuff on their it's albums. It's often the case, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Dr. Robert goes on and does a series of absolutely breathtaking solo albums. They're nothing like the Blow Monkeys. Mm. And then Reforms He was an arrogant them. bugger, though, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, he was a bit of a prick, to be honest. Mm. But, you know, Jackson Pollock was a bit of a prick. Yeah. In fact, not just a bit of a prick, he was a complete prick. Yeah. And look at what he achieved. Yeah, absolutely. What did he achieve? Jackson Pollock. <laughs> he made number five. <laughs> That's not a euphemism. He did some brilliant covers for the Stone Roses, I tell you. <laughs> <clears throat> did he do the lemon as well? On the front of the cover. I don't know. When you say, did he do the lemon? <laughs> Are you talking about that Keith lemon bloke? Have, have you got some emails there? Are we done talking last Christmas? <sighs> last Christmas. Yeah, Nine out of ten for me. The title of last Christmas. It's what? a wham song, right? Yeah. Yeah, when she walks into the infirmary and they say, Are we putting a record on? I really hoped it wasn't going to be that. I thought it was going to be that. I love that Slade song. I don't care what anyone says. I know people are sick to death of it. I love it. I like the wham song. I don't, don't, yeah, it's a great song. I don't think the production on it does it any favours. No. I think if you look at what, yeah, if you look at what George Michael does very soon afterwards, on Faith, but more especially on Listen Without Prejudice, Mm. and the songwriting's not that dissimilar from Last Christmas, but the production is light years away. Mm, Cowboys and Angels, what a song. Mm Mm-hmm. So, just imagine... It all goes right. Have you heard his version of True Faith? We've said that before, haven't we? True faith. Yeah. But can you... Did he ever re-record Last Christmas? Because I can imagine that if he'd have ever re-recorded Last Christmas, that might have been a very interesting version to you. Or in a state now. Have we gone off on one again? Yeah, yeah we, we have. have. Yeah. <laughs> last Christmas. No, it's about Last Christmas, isn't it? But I thought the title was a good title as well. It was... Um... I, I do like that. And actually, well, what they say uh, every Christmas is somebody's last Christmas, yeah. which is why we all come together at Christmas just in case. And this is propensity for tragedy at Christmas as well, isn't there? You yeah, know, yeah. Something bad always seems to happen around Christmas, but it's all to do with our focus, isn't it? But people but also, do worry about that. They but think... it's also because it's in the depths of winter. Hmm. And, you know, going back over generations. And this is still true now, which is quite astonishing given the advancements in medicine. But going back over generations, you might have a summer where you're on your last legs and it's when the winter hits and December is when the winter really hits. 
that you're going to get taken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're a barrel of laughs, aren't you? I've just been to Australia and it's their summer over there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's listening from Australia is just going to say, yeah, we know. <laughs> but to me, it was a revelation because it's Christmas out there, of course. It's Christmas around the world. But it's not in any way, shape or form the Christmas that we all know here. The cold Victorian landscape that we live in. <laughs> the do we live co- in the cobbledy streets, the little tiny urchins that come up and sell oranges. They really do. Australian You've been people. spending way too much time <laughs> in Gandhi Street, haven't you? <laughs> but um, over in Australia, he even it's stroked not okay. his moustache then when yeah, he said yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's no, there's no atmosphere whatsoever. It just, it is the middle of summer. I just, could, you know, Santa was walking around. So shorts. you know, with that first, the first time I spoke to you after you came back from Australia, all your sentences went up in the air at the end. Did they? They did. did they really go up. Yeah, yeah everyone. It's just the way it is, mate. Yeah, um, anyway, there it is. But uh, mm. no sign of any Doctor Who books out there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. Strange. I've already marked last Christmas with a nine. Simon. Yes, I, did, I said earlier, a nine. It's a nine for me. It's not a ten because it didn't have that something. I don't know, I think it did have that something, but I think the fact that Moffat over-explains it just a little bit too much for my taste, mm. and the pretty poor reindeer, and the scene on the sleigh at the end, which is a great scene. I like that, actually. Yeah, it's a great scene, but there are just the odd moments during it where it's sort of verging <laughs> on being in Doctor Widow in a wardrobe territory. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so for those things it loses a mark, I think. Mm. I'll give it an 8 because it's not quite a 9 and 10 for me. Because you've not watched it again yet. Possibly. But I just think um, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I thought it was great fun. But strangely enough, I'm still a massive fan of the, you know, the Sycorax episode and um, Runaway Bride. I thought those those two were just so much massive fun. Ridiculous. I definitely think it was the it's, best it's Christmas. Light, it's light years away but... from each other. They are completely different. But mm. for some reason I have still got this fondness for the silliness of the RTD stuff. Um, I still think it's, I think it's the best Moffat on. Oh, then again, I like Christmas Carol as well. I don't know. It's an I, I, That's I why it's an the, marrying, the marrying of, the, of it being a Christmas episode and it being a Doctor Who with a, something that's really quite nasty going on. Yeah. The yeah, more you, you think don't... about it, the more nastier it gets. Oh, yeah, these creatures that attach themselves to your face put something through your skull and start eating your brain, dissolving mm. your brain, mm. but give you nice dreams so that you'll let them do it. That's, uh, you know, that's arc in space territory. It is, yeah. But it's, you could have even gone further if you wanted to, because it's a dream state. I know we have Father Christmas, that's pretty that's pretty out there. But you could have even had, even had the entire... It could have been like the mind robber. It could have been like the mind robber. It could have been completely out there. Giant tangerines walking towards you. No, but it could have been completely mental in the in a storytelling sense. And I think he it was almost like he was playing it a little bit safe in the dream. But I think he needed to tell a story. And if, if he'd have gone off the one, it would have been too. It's a joint dream, though, isn't it? It was. Uh... Yeah, yeah, but I think what he was doing was he was telling a story, the dream story that's really out there. Mm. But then he would the dream within the dream where they're based under siege is for. The viewers. It's like, I could go somewhere insane, but it's Christmas Day, and people who like Doctor Who are watching this, so what I'll do is I'll make this portion of the story insane, and I'll make this portion of the story the most Doctor Who we've ever made Doctor Who. Mm. So that somewhere in between, where you marry those two ideas together, you're getting the best of both worlds. 
Whereas if he'd have gone off and done the mind robber, you know, people would have just start throwing stools at the telly or whatever. <laughs> stools? Yeah. Where Ch- do you live? Mid- chairs, yeah. yeah. Do you live in a bar? No. I mean, like monkeys. <laughs> like <chimpies>. Yeah. <laughs> That's a ch- chimpies. It's like a shortened version of chimpanzees. Chimpies. Just like chimpies. That'd be oh. a child screaming upstairs. We just laughed about poo. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, she might be throwing stools around the bedroom. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Just like her mother. Okay, we. I'm going to ignore that. Yeah, I don't think it's worth the time. Ian Martin says, and this pod, this I should have read this out at least a fortnight ago, if not three weeks ago. on the table and now I can't move them about <laughs> so I'm trying to be very still Ian Martin says dear blue boxers just a quick note at Christmas to say thank you for all the many hours of genuine entertainment you've given us this year the insights the opinion and the increasingly discursive letters from Sharak Jizz who has <laughs> confounded TV theorists with a new way of reading televisual texts the onanistic adolescent reading of Doctor Who is a long overdue re re-evaluation of the franchise. My own early works in this field, the curiously unpublished How to Make Perry Perry Sauce, touched on this nascent critical standpoint. <laughs> but I feel Jeers has really moved the goalposts so that lesser theorists' efforts merely bounce off the impressively inflexible woodwork. <laughs> I wish each of you a wonderful Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I hope 2015 brings something wonderful into the lives of you all. And that is not a euphemism. Ian. That's from Ian Martin, the chap who was in, um, you know, Robot up to Terror of the Zygons. <laughs> Seeing as Mark's here, I'm going to have to make that joke on his behalf. Yes. And then there's a couple from Matthew of the Barbers. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> okay, one of them's mm. quite serious and one of them's quite not. Okay. So I say that one of them's quite not till after. Yeah. Okay, dear Blue Box Podcast. No! The War Doctor wasn't just racked by the guilt of using the moment. He elected not to be called Doctor because he was forced to fight in the Time War rather than healing people. It was made clear from the decision faced by the Eighth Doctor in Night of the Doctor and in dialogue during Day of the Doctor that this was the case. To suggest that the moment was the only catalyst of the Doctor renouncing his name is ignoring and possibly diminishing the horrors of the Time War and the War Doctor's undoctorish combative role in it. Before I go on, I just make the point. I was talking about what you'd see on screen as opposed to what you're told on screen, because I think there's a difference. I think, especially for a casual audience, you know, if you don't show it, you only tell it. It mm. doesn't necessarily sit. So I was basically, and I don't think it's just for a casual audience either. I think if you talk about things but don't show them, I think in a way you're not proving them. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Explain more. Well, uh, for example, oh, I'm trying to think of an example. Well, okay, let's use the example that Matt's given us. The, I said in a podcast a few weeks ago that the War Doctor shouldn't really be called the War Doctor because it's only when he. No, the guilt that means he loses his name, right? Is the guilt that the doctors that follow him feel because it's not till he uses the moment which is virtually the very last act of his 
regenerative life that he does the thing that means he loses the name and establishes the guilt. And Matt's saying that earlier in that incarnation's life, he joins in the Time War and does some pretty nasty stuff mm. and decides right from the start of the regeneration that his name won't be Doctor, as we see in Night of the Doctor. And I'm saying, yeah, it's all very well saying that, but we don't actually see it. We don't see it. And in fact, the Doctor that we see played by John Hurt in Day of the Doctor is pretty much of a oneness with all the other Doctors mm. up until the moment at which he has to do okay. this act that you know secures him the guilt and makes him lose the name, which is why it's the subsequent Doctors who deliberately forget him. Yeah. So I think you win that argument, but um. But I carry but, on and read the rest of what Matt's say, got to what say. say is what, no, you don't need to say because Matt, Matt's about to. Is he about to say? Yes, he oh, is. <laughs> That's why I paused halfway through. <laughs> Matt goes on to say, it's what makes his character so interesting and why I'm imagining the stories in Seasons of War, available via a good charitable donation plug, will be such a good exploration of what Doctor Who is and isn't. Love Matt. I knew he was going to say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Exactly you know, it won't be for a television audience, but Declan May and Warren Fry from Radio Free Scarrow. Mm. Their anthology of stories, which should be more or less out by the time this podcast goes out, will put the bones on that Doctor. At least for people who follow these things. And it is uh, an unauthorised anthology, but it is all for charity. So, And I mean, you only have to Google Seasons of War, Doctor Who, Seasons of War, whatever, or find Declan May, or even find any of the three of us. Um, We'll point you in the direction to get your hands on it. We're all connected. Oh, it's a lovely juicy bit of text he's just put out on Facebook. Mm. Really lovely. There's all From kinds the of secrets opener. that we've been watching and seeing and looking at recently. Well, it's a nice short film. Lovely. Has any of that gone out yet? Not yet, no. Uh, no, there's a, the teaser's gone out. Teaser's out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but the, yeah, the short film yeah. itself. We've seen rough edits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're smiling. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. It's kind of a shame that it's not an official book because... Uh, you know, as good as George Mann's book, it was George Mann who wrote the book. Yeah. As good as his book was, mm. that's kind of scratching the surface, isn't it? It really is. Mm. Whereas this is really getting into the bones of it. And in fact, George Mann's written the story for this book. So yeah. it's not like it, this book is in competition with his. His is the official one. This is an unofficial one. Yeah. And in a similar way to the way fan fiction has far, far, far outstripped whatever amount of stuff was on the telly. Seasons of War is kind of outstripping what George Mann's book did in terms of how much we see of the War Doctor. Yeah, because we see his entire age. Mm. You know, from his early incarnation, or his early part of his incarnation to his elder self. And uh, I think that's the genius of this, really. It'd be fascinating. Cause well, the genius I think of people win for this, right? But yeah. what's fascinating is that we don't know what the other stories are. Actually, me and Simon had do know quite a few of the stories because we did help definitely with a few kind of bits and pieces. But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Is, is there going to be a connection between all the stories? Are we going to see something that that builds, um, you know, to, to a crescendo. Or are they separate stories? Are there going to be little links? He's going to do a Moffat. We don't know what Declan's completely up to. So, you know, there are sections that we've been involved with, but not all of it. And I'm really excited about this, uh, you know, reading other people's stories. Can't wait, in fact. Mm. Well, you're going to have to, but probably oh, not no. when this podcast goes out. There's a bit of time you want me for you. We have weeks. 
to wait. Weeks to wait now. Actually, the genius of this book is actually my story. <laughs> it's quite true. Yeah. You've not read my story. I've not read. No, I've not read. I've much. read it. It's only one line, isn't it? <laughs> is it only supposed to be one sentence? The the last time lord. <laughs> <laughs> the last Time Lord in the universe was alone in his TARDIS. It was a knock at the door. That's no, it. that doesn't that work, does it? Yeah, that was it. Brilliant. So, I am a fish or something. That's not by Frederick Brown. Yeah. But also, wasn't that inspired by somebody else's short story? And what Frederick Brown was, was did a rewrite of it to give it an extra level of depth. I don't know. Probably. The story at Knock, the short story is the last man on earth was alone in a room. Mm. There was a knock at the door. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's it. That's all you need. Yeah. Right, let's get back to Mr. Barber because his second email came in a little later on and it said, Dear Blue Box Podcasters, one quick question. Going back to another podcast from a few weeks ago. If, as you suggest, ice warriors aren't susceptible to the cold, why does turning the heat up in the moon base in Seeds of Death incapacitate them? Love that. No. And I'll tell you what, I replied to him, and I'm just going to read my reply out rather than explain it any further. And I said, the answer to your question is the same answer as you'd have to the question, why do people continue to call the Ice Warriors the Ice Warriors, even after it's utterly blatantly apparent to anyone with half a brain that that's not their name? The answer being, of course, Terence Diggs. That's <laughs> true. You've got to love him. <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, Terence Diggs writes Seeds of Death. Yeah. And They're Martians, aren't they? Entirely forget. Hot Planet. Mm-hmm. Hey? Hot Planet. Well, Mars. it would have been in the time they were around, which was thousands of years ago, where it would have been hotter than it is now. Mm. But it certainly wouldn't yeah. have been an ice planet at any point. And as I ice pointed planet out... Ice planet nice planet? Ice planet. Oh, okay. A nice one. As I pointed out on the podcast the other week, this being for Lee's benefit, who doesn't bother listening, they call them the ice warriors because they find them in the ice. And when they're in the ice, they're frozen, solid, incapacitated. So there's no reason on earth why, A, they should have an affinity with ice, because that's what froze them, and B, they should be called the Ice Warriors because they weren't Ice Warriors until they got frozen in the ice. It's like calling a mammoth an ice. So they're Martians, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But this is Terence Diggs. He's just just writing children's stories in the 1960s. That's that's what it was about, yeah. That's just one example of millions of things that you could pick up on from Patrick Trout's era. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> go, why? Why this? Why that? It doesn't matter. Oh! doesn't matter, Matt. Cool it, babes. Mm. Cool it, Barbara. Right, everything... Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Good emails. I like those emails. They're yeah. very good. Yeah. They're getting better, aren't they? Yeah. Bye. <laughs> and... Well, I've watched a couple of films. Do you want me to talk about a couple of films that I've watched? Yeah, go on. Then. Actually, I've watched three films since we did film reviews on here. Bought in a row, or no? Um, over the space of the last few weeks, because we've not talked films for over a month now. No. So, what, what's this one star review that you? Oh God, I think I did talk about that on the podcast. Actually, I don't really want to rake over those curls. It was oh, awful. Just give us the title. Then. The Haunting of Crestview High. Oh yes, I think I remember you. Yeah. Blasting that with mm. a lot of acid. In your mouth. But I've watched something else in the last few days that, well, wasn't that far away from getting a one star review, to be perfectly frank. And I've watched another film in the last few weeks that was called The Haunting of Something. 
in the last fortnight. So that is coincidence for you. I'm going to save the haunting of Blackwood till after. Because actually that was way better than you think it would be. Okay. And the other one I watched was Awaken the Devil. It's just a dirt cheap horror movie. Are you getting the horror movies on purpose? Yeah, because I quite enjoy cheap horror movies. Oh, do you? Well, I so thought I. I did. Not anymore. <laughs> it's <coughs> It's got a cast of two characters, right? I think, in fact, there's only one other character in the entire film who has any dialogue at all, and that's right at the very start, mm. and it doesn't play any significant role in the movie. So it's a cast of two characters, one of whom is... Dumb and in a wheelchair. Okay. Which, you know, in a movie in which there's a cast of a number of characters, a character who's dumb and in a wheelchair wouldn't be a problem. But in a cast of two characters, somebody who's dumb means that at no point during the hour and a half running time can you have a conversation. So the film is entirely free of conversations. But it also means that at no point during the course of the 90 minutes can you have, for want of a better expression, an action sequence. You can't have... He's in a wheelchair, which means that, to a greater or lesser degree, you are bound by what he's capable of doing, right? Yeah. So the entire first 20 minutes takes place in one single location where nothing happens and nobody talks. And then they move to another location where for the next hour and ten minutes, nothing happens and nobody talks. Sounds like my kind of film. <laughs> it's really not. Well, and you know, this is horror films. Yes. It's... <laughs> Your face. <laughs> it's... At the end, there's like this little twist. And there's a couple of really obvious twists that come along that are so obvious, you know, from the first five minutes that they're going to happen. Right. The guy in the wheelchair who can't talk by the end of the movie. Uh, (laughs) But of course, because he, by the end of the movie, uh uh-huh, the other character, by the end of the movie, Uh uh uh-huh. Yeah. So, but at the end, there's this tiny little twist that is kind of supposed to reveal what the story's been about. But actually, there is no story. They end up in this deserted building where they are supposed to, according to the blurb on the thing, they're supposed to get caught up in some eons old plan that the devil has, which, as it turns out in the twist at the end, is to get back into heaven, right? Okay. Which sounds like an interesting twist, Mm. but there's no story. There's no plot. The devil doesn't... The devil visits them with succubi, right? Mm. But these succubi don't affect any change on the characters. Don't cause the characters to do anything. And the characters don't do anything to escape from the succubi. So there's no plot. There's no story. You'd think a film that involves a plan would involve clues being solved. Or, you know, once those clues are solved, you try and escape from the revelations that the solving of the clues bring you. There are no clues. 
There's no solving of anything. There's no running from anything. There's no running to anything. There's just two guys in a room staring at the walls and about every 20 minutes they get visited by a succubus and then they go back to staring at the walls for 20 minutes until you get to the end of the film. It is absolutely astonishing. And the <laughs> only thing, the only thing that saves this film from being a one-star movie, well, maybe two things, the the revelation at the end because the way the devil wants to get back into heaven, I thought it was quite a clever twist. It's probably been used before, but I hadn't seen it. So, yeah, it's been used before in The Wicker Man, actually, but I've not seen it used in this context. Okay. The other thing that saves this movie, almost, <clears throat> is that, have you ever seen um, what was the Philip K. Dick adaptation with Keanu Reeves that involves the animation, the rotoscoping? Scanner Darkly. Scanner Darkly. Mm. This is... It's not rotoscoping, it's called rotomation. Okay. Which, instead of... Looks a bit like a nightmare. <clears throat> oh. Which means, in a scanner darkly, what they did was, they filmed the characters against green screen, and then put those characters against backgrounds and animated the whole thing. So it was basically a cartoon that looked like reality. Mm-hmm. In this film, what they've done is, they've film the characters against green screens and then drop them into photographs. And that's it. What? <laughs> but then they've... And you know how film is 25 frames per second instead of videos, 50 frames per yeah. second, so you don't have the smooth motion on film that you do on video. Yeah. Well, this appears to be 12 frames a second. <laughs> so not only are they against photographic backdrops, but it's also incredibly hideously jerky (laughs) it does make for an interesting experience and i did give it one extra star on that account but it is not an experience i would recommend that's a shame what about there was no atmosphere then because i mean obviously you know because some some 70s i mean okay uh, whistle and i'll come to you right mr james there is no real story there, but it's... But it builds an atmosphere. It builds an atmosphere. Just yeah, but every time atmosphere. the succubus turns up, or the succubi turn up, because everything else is photographic backdrops, and these two guys who've been filmed and then had the colours washed out and set against the photographic backdrops, when an animated succubus turns up, it's like, who framed Roger Bloody Rabbit turning up? <laughs> and any atmosphere that you might have been attempting to build... But then no story and no dialogue. So there's no building of atmosphere anyway. Mm. Any atmosphere you might have. And the thing is, the director and the writers throw a few things early in the film to kind of make you go, ooh, I wonder what's going on here. But as it turns out, those things are A, irrelevant and B, illogical. So Mm. without having a moment... What were they trying to do? Were they trying to get like an art film or... What was it supposed no, to be? No, I think it's just a low-budget horror film. And what they wanted to do was make it look a bit different to stand out from the other low-budget horror films that okay. are around. It failed. As you say, that's a credit. I mean, there's a credit to it. You could do something like... Um, a bit like... Do you remember there was a TV adaptation of the comic strip Jane? Do you remember the... Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. With Glynis Barber from Blake 7. That's right. I'm going to have to dig that one out from somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> You're right, no, that did it really interestingly because it, it set her against black and white drawings, didn't it? It did, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and because because it was setting her against black and white drawings, the remove was so dynamic that it worked because it was a thing. Whereas in this, because they haven't got the whole hog and animated the rotoscoping, 
It's just this weird halfway house mm. that, you know, every single still frame in the movie is interesting. Mm. But it's when they start moving that it just... Because there are so many scenes where it's just a shot that goes on for like a minute and a half before it cuts to another shot that goes on for a minute and a half of people not doing anything. And it cuts to a skull with bits floating off it. <laughs> and, a, and a clock. But they're not moving the story forward is the point. Yeah. If they were not yeah. doing anything and the story was moving forwards, that would be okay. You could build atmosphere like that. Because then the story might become about them doing nothing. But the story's not about them doing nothing. It's just that for some reason they've written these two characters in like this so that they can do the twist of the one in the wheelchair who's a mute switching places so with the other one a, at the end of the movie. I guess there was a script at some stage where somebody read through it and says, oh yeah, that's going to work. It's very hard to tell. It's got, yeah, two, it might be a... it's got two credited writers and based on a story by a third one, which is astonishing. I mean, I'm not saying there's no talking in it at all. One of the characters monologues, I was going to say a lot, but he does it about three times for about two minutes, so it's probably not that much at all. And the mute character has a little chalkboard on his wheelchair, so there are times when the other one will say something, he'll chalk something back, but it just doesn't work. No. I mean, I don't think there should be a set process for making a film. I'm not saying that you should start with a script and, you know, the, the standard way of making a film, but in a situation like that where it's so dependent on... Very few characters. It's it's got to work. There's no story. That. That's the problem. Mm. If things it's happen, like it's... waiting for Godot, but waiting for Mister Devilo instead, couldn't it? It, it is. It's, except you know, waiting for Godot actually had some things to say about <laughs> some things, and this is just two guys sitting in a room for an hour, getting occasional weird things happening to them that don't push the story forward. In any way, it's funny because you sent me the link. You said, oh, "I'm t- I'm look- I'm reviewing these two films," and I checked out the trailers, and I thought that was the more interesting of the two. Yeah, I've not watched the other one yet, so oh, okay. I'll find out about that next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the other film I watched just a couple of weeks ago, just before Christmas, <coughs> was called Haunting of Blackwood, and I would recommend that. Oh, good. It's yeah. Is well, it fa- is it a lost footage film? No, or found footage? No, film? no, no, no. It's not a found footage film. And it's not really a horror film either. You'd think oh. from the title and from the advertising that it's a horror film. It's really not. Four, no, three, there's a fourth who comes in halfway through the story. Strangers find themselves in a cabin in the woods. And you think, right, this is Evil Dead territory. But it's not. What it does is... I've probably watched this, so... Yeah, no, I shan't say any more than what it does is... It's kind of a... Low-key, relatively downbeat drama about the characters with a little bit of timey-wimey thrown in. I shan't say any more than that, except that 20 minutes into the movie, you'll think you've worked it out. And 40 minutes into the movie, you'll be delighted to find you are completely wrong. Hey, actually, have you seen Time Crimes? Yeah, you talked about this before, remember? Yeah, I have. I can't stop thinking about it. This is a sign of a good film, isn't it? I'm, I'm not going to say any more, but uh, yeah, go go and watch Time Crimes. It's it's, it's amusing as well as being a, a bit of a head spinner. It's a bit like. Uh, did you ever see Primer? Did you yeah, see yeah, Primer? Yeah, yeah. yeah so a, a similar way of dealing with with time travel. There's no fuss. There's no flash. There's no kind of like, oh, that's how it is. You know, it's it's literally uh, not 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 that's how it is, but no kind of big, you know. <laughs> sound effects or whatever it literally is kind of real life 
is if time travel really happened. Prime is brilliant like that because obviously these guys are testing out a time machine in their kitchen almost. And then they go forward in time or whatever. And they know that they've got a plan that they have to hide in a, in a big kind of tin box, basically, uh, in a warehouse until their time is up mm. and then they can go out walking again. Mm. Uh, it's, it's just bonkers. And the only way you can tell them apart is by one of their ties slightly undone and this sort of thing. It's like, whoa. So I, I spent the whole of my, my time in the cinema. I didn't eat one piece of popcorn. I was sitting there trying to work it out <laughs> and concentrating. My ears were bleeding. And everybody was talking in the toilets afterwards about it, which is always a good sign. Stop slapping your bollocks. Whilst we were slapping our bollocks and putting our makeup on. But um, <laughs> I love I thought Primer was another one of those head-twisting, excellent concepts. And, and very lo- incredibly low budget. Well, this one, Haunting of Blackwood, it's not really a head twister. <coughs> it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. It's fairly simple, and it doesn't do lots of twisty, turny stuff that you have to work out. It basically sets up the story, and you find things that... There's a couple of really big clues at the start that send you off on a complete red herring because you read the clues the wrong way, even though the clues are also available to be read the other way. Hmm. But it doesn't take you through twists to get there. You do. You find things out as it goes... So you work it out as it goes, but it doesn't send you through hoops in order to do that. It's about the characters rather than about the twists. Mm. So actually, it's not a great movie, and at the end of it, it doesn't quite make logical sense. i say it's the kind of film that you'd be more likely to watch once and not really want to revisit, but that one time you watched it, you'd enjoy it. And if you caught it again years later. But it's more of a renter than a buyer. Okay. I'll give you one more then. Have you seen The Hollow? No. That's a found footage film. Oh. Yeah. It's, um, it's got elements and feelings of the 1970s um, Christmas um, things. So, you know, the M.R. James thing I was just talking about. But the other end, I can't remember the name of the last one they did about the stone uh, men her that was like crushed some kind of bones and they released the spirit and this woman just bleeds to death throughout the episode. It's really, really rubbish. Um, but the atmosphere is all there, okay? So the hollow is a bit like that. It's like a modern take on those Stop 70s. Stop slapping yourself. Am I slapping myself again? Yeah, if I thought you slapped me. It's like, you uh, you didn't slap you're me. like this all the time. <laughs> God damn it. Um, it's panto season. It's, it is panto season. Is anyway. that a euphemism? <laughs> but the hollow, I think, if you, Rabbit watch, season. if you watch it with all the lights off, it's got some genuinely creepy bits in it. You know, some of the ideas by it. and it's got a brilliant tree, it's a great tree. The film around a fantastic tree, in the <coughs> and it's got a real character to the tree, and I really liked it. But then they <laughs> it's just a scene where they start taking some drugs, and oh, they start taking ow, they start taking some drugs, and um, and it kind of accentuates the problem, the, the supernatural side of it all. And there's just a line that one guy comes up because he's slightly middle class posh, and he goes. Oh, and that's right. And he snogs somebody's girlfriend, and, and and his girlfriend slaps him, and it just gets a bit silly. And he just turns around and says, "But darling, it was the bad Charlie." <laughs> I just thought that line had me on the floor. I was really kind of like, "Oh yeah, this is getting good." And then suddenly he said that. I was like, ah, it's the worst piece of acting I've seen in the film in about ten years. And you haven't actually told us what the plot of this film is yet. Oh, no, no, because I want you to watch it. You've got to watch it. Yeah. I'm struggling to get through these review films. (laughs) But then there's a reason why I'm struggling to get through these review films half the time. Are you getting sent all the ones that other people don't want to review? Is that what it is? Basically. (laughs) 
Sure I have some sort of, of the big ones, but I never get them. So sure sort of um, level I'm working at. Any film I can think of I watched recently is Turbo. Turbo. That sounds like a horrible snail. Fast and the oh, Furious snail. type ripper. It's, it's about a racing snail. It's a DreamWorks animation. So I watched it with the kids. Oh, and okay. I was pleasantly. I will say I was pleasantly surprised. Oh, we picked up. DVDs of Postman Pat and the Lego Movie at Christmas, but we've not got around to watching them yet. Oh, have you not watched Lego Movie yet? Right, no. I've got to watch that again. Actually, I've not watched it properly, but um, yeah, cracking film. Well, I'm looking forward to them. It's very good. But Turbo, I, I thought it was surprisingly good. I thought it was going to be quite because it was a film, wasn't it? Released through? Did it go into the cinemas? I don't think it did. Did it come straight through to Netflix or something like that? I think. Something about that film, don't which know. made me think, oh, it's going to be a bit half-cut, that one. Yeah. But it isn't. It's very good. I don't know what it's about, apart from the fact it's a racing snail. Yeah. About three years ago, I wrote a poem called uh, Signy Kell, Racing Snail. And it was... Whatever's it was, going it was, on, Lee's been there I've before. done it. Yeah, you've had the idea there. before. I've then. done it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll read it to you one day. It's pretty good. I had to write it for a competition. It's so a library. It was the Olympics year. Oh. So I wrote this thing about a snail, and I had to, you know... It's, tell the kids to write a poem and they said well you write one first so I wrote this one which I was quite proud of then I thought this will make a good film mm. do you know all that time Lee spent in that box with Stephen Moffat Stephen Moffat actually sent him into the future so Lee could come forwards have all these ideas and go back and have them in the past yeah he saw Turbo yeah and thought I'm having some of that <laughs> he did but yeah no, it's quite predictable as you'd expect but it, it plays out to the point where you just entertain the kids will love it so it's very good. Yeah. I mean, I don't so you're slapping your bollocks now. Am I? Yeah. Oh, God, everybody's slapping their bollocks. <laughs> right! Oh, oh, and of course, did you watch the first episode of Broadchurch? Series 2? Oh, it was on last night. No, no I've Sky Plused it. Oh, okay, I won't say anything then. All right. I won't say anything. Are they all dying? But <laughs> only as much as I was really surprised. Oh, okay. Well, I'll find out later. Yeah. All right. Right, then... Well, so for this week then, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. And you know what, guys? I am done with talking about Doctor Who. Doctor Who.